Scripture passage this morning is Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died in sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. This is the word of the Lord. Well, welcome to Sojourn. My name is Dylan. I'm glad that you guys are here worshiping with us. Uh, as we think about the new year, we, th- we can think about sojourn and our direction here and our priorities. We want to resolve ourselves to carry those out, but they have not shifted uh, one bit. We prioritize the, the Bible, the gospel, community, and mission, and we want to continue in that mission. So thoughts for the coming year are that we want to continue to equip the, the saints for the work of ministry. We're working to make sure that we are equipped to, to walk in faithfulness for the, the days that we're living in, in our current cultural moment. So we still have things like equipped classes going on once a month. We are providing books in the book table. We're working on different events to help further equip us to walk in these uh, strange times we're walking in. We want to continue to uh, grow in our depth of community by, by strengthening the groups and the group leaders that we have and continuing training that we've, we've started with them and to initialize some, some more groups with some more leaders to meet further needs and greater depth of need for community. We, we want to continue to work to, to establish a, a faithful shepherding here. Uh, we are pleased to, to say that we've hired uh, Shelby Maddox to be an intern here to help us and to further carry on the, the mission that we're working with to care for the flock well and to continue to practically equip people for the work of ministry. But overall, we are trying to grow in our, our love for the Lord, to worship Him, to care deeply about His Word, to be a people who are living fully for the, the fame and renown of God's name. And we are convinced that the, 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 the church it is a church that is to be built from the word up, not from a program, not from a man, not from anything that we can come up with down, but from the word up. Amen. And so as we turn to God's word this morning, would you just join me in prayer as we uh, kind of commit anew to these priorities. Father, thank you for your word. It is a mercy that you have spoken to us, and it is a mercy that we get a sit in its hearing. May it rightly equip us for the work of ministry that you have prepared for us to walk in. For those who may not know you as Father, I pray that it would call them in to life in your name. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Eat, drink, and be merry. That's a worldly gospel. Perhaps a gospel that has been pronounced several times over the new year. It's a gospel that's pronouncing that life, joy, satisfaction can be found fully here and now in this world. It's the self-talk of the fool in the parable in Luke chapter 12 who, who has to get rid of his barns and build bigger ones because he has so much plenty. And he says to himself, eat, drink, and be merry. 
It's the world's gospel, even if the world doesn't think that life, joy, and satisfaction can be found here and now, because they say, hey, even if I don't think those things can be found here and now, there's nothing after that, so we might as well live it up. You only live once, so let's eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we're going to die. It's the attitude of those who live life apart from God in 1 Corinthians 15, who add to the eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we're going to die, so you might as well live it up. But the biblical gospel, the gospel of this scripture, flips this worldly gospel on its head completely. It flips the saying, not by saying, hey, you know what? There's no eating, no drinking, no being merry because we trust in the Bible and in our God. Religious folks kind of make it like that at times, don't they? That's not the, how the gospel, the true gospel, flips it on its head. It does it by altering the words in light of the gospel, eat, drink, and be merry, for we have died. In Romans chapter 6, Paul begins to iron out what the, those who are counted righteous in Christ, the, those who have faith, he's trying to iron out what their relationship is towards sin. So, so those who are counted righteous, he's been talking about what their relationship is with God. You, you are counted righteous by your faith in Christ. It's, it's by faith in, alone in Christ alone that you have right standing, right relationship with the one true living God. Now, then he moves a little bit more into saying he's layered that and say you're, you're in Christ. And what does that being in Christ mean? What does that mean in your relationship to sin? He has told us that by faith in Jesus... One's relationship with sin is altered decisively and definitively. Faith unites one to Christ, and if you're united to Christ by faith, here's what he's going to tell us in chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. That by that union, by being united to Christ, you now have this new status that you need to know about and realize. A new status, new relationship in regards to sin, and you have now been set free to walk in newness of life. But by faith, one participates in Christ's death and resurrection, which has massive implications for the one who has faith in regards to their relationship to sin. In chapter 5, Paul was shining the light on the greatness of the grace of our God. Look at what he says in verse 20 and 21 of chapter 5. The, the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He says, what does the reign of sin and death do in, in light of grace? It serves to magnify the sufficiency and the greatness of grace as it triumphs over the reign of sin and death in Christ Jesus. So what Paul is speaking of is the real reign of sin and death, a, a dark reality. Something that you can't ignore. Like sin and death are around us. They're very present. There is a real rain. But he says that in that place where there is the rain of sin and death, in that place, grace abounded. And in saying that grace abounded all the more, where sin increased all the more, what he has now done is he's left the door open for some distortion. It's good news. It's really good news. And what we can do often in our, our sinfulness and what the world does in sinfulness is that we take really good news and we, and we twist it. Suppress the truth, chapter 1, he says. Twisting it, using it, hijacking it for our own means. And he says he knows that the door is open for that. Look at what he says in chapter 6, verse 1. All this grace abounding is good news, but he says, well, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Makes sense, doesn't it? If grace abounds in sin, 
then perhaps it doesn't matter how one lives their life. Because even if they live in sin, grace can abound in those places. Even you could say, you could make the argument that, that the more sin, you could even magnify the greatness of grace with more sin, couldn't you? One might say this, that uh, if sin, if the law comes in and it increases sin, but grace abounds there, then, hey, how about this? I'll, I'll be the trophy of God's grace in my sin. If the law increases it, I'll, I'll, I'll disobey the law uh, to, to magnify God's grace. I'll be the one who does that so that grace can abound all the more. I'll break the law in order to exalt grace. I can be that person. Well, that's a poor reading of chapter 5, verse 20 and 21. Not a reading that you heard here. Takes no account of verse 21 where he says there's actual reign, not of just sin and death, but there's another reign, right? The reign of grace, which is a reign of grace that's reigning through what? Righteousness that leads to eternal life, right? Living. There are always going to be those who are going to excuse and rationalize sin. And this reason that grace may abound in sin will do just as good as any. And indeed, we could look at Paul and say, look, you said it in chapter 5, verse 20 and 21. Grace is going to abound in sin. So why don't we just pick that reason? But I think the question that Paul asked in verse 1 is more likely an attempt to accuse Paul and to poke holes in his gospel. He already said in chapter 3, verse 8, he says, and, and why not do evil that good may come, as some slanderously charge us with saying? So he, he's got a reputation around. People are slandering Paul and his message. They're poking holes in him and in his message to, to minimize the, the greatness of the depth of their own sin. And so they're, they're maybe trying to accuse Paul and poke holes in his gospel. Maybe there's some people who, who are hearing Paul's gospel and actually have a real objection. Like, wait a second. If that's true, what you said in chapter 5, verse 20 and 21, then, then, then doesn't it logically conclude that, that now I can sin and that grace will abound all the more in there? So maybe there's a real in, in, objection there. But the question is, doesn't this gospel and this grace open the door for people to continue in and to excuse their sin? And Paul gets out in front of that question and he addresses it head on, bringing clarity to this distortion by saying, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Verse 2, by no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Whatever grace's reign through righteousness is, whatever it's talking about, it's certainly not continue in sin that grace may abound. That's not the reign of grace, Paul says. That's not what I was talking about in chapter 5, verse 20 and 21. You can get that out of that, but you're distorting it, and you need to know that's not the reign of grace in anyone's life. Paul gives a strong no, probably because it's such a poor reading of chapter 5. Like, hey, if that's what they're saying about what I'm, my gospel that I'm preaching, then that's just a really poor way to understand it. And they're not really giving it a great hearing. A clear distortion of the gospel that I'm trying to proclaim. The gospel of justification by faith alone. He says grace doesn't lead to anyone continuing in sin or excusing their sin. He says no means to, by no means to that. To continue in sin because we... We can let grace abound is to deny what he says here in this first verse. He says what? That we have died to sin. We've died to sin. The we here are those who are justified by faith. Chapter 3, he's talked long about how you now have the righteousness of God, not through the works of the law, but by 
faith in Jesus Christ. It's those who are counted righteous by faith in chapter 4. Those who trust in Jesus for their justification because he was, chapter 4, verse 25, delivered over for their sins and raised up for our justification. It's those no longer under the reign of sin and death through Adam, but under the reign of grace through the second Adam, Jesus Christ, in chapter 5. It's not those who have righteousness by works of the law, by circumcision, or any other way, but who, in chapter 4, verse 12, they walk in the footsteps of their father Abraham, who did what? Just believed in God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. It's not those who merely hold to the doctrine of justification by faith alone, but those who actually have faith in Jesus. That's the we he's talking about here in chapter 6, verse 2. How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? This we, Paul makes what's implied in grace abounding, what's implied in the reign of grace, he makes it explicit by saying, we, all those from chapters 3 through 5 that I've been talking about, we have died to sin. Notice that that, when he says that, we died to sin, that that is not an imperative. It it is not a command. He'll say that later, right? But like, that's not what it is here. He doesn't say, be dead to sin. He doesn't say, die to sin. He's using an indicative. I think when I was in fourth grade, as we were going through the Shirley method, that we would say, period, statement, declarative sentence. I was like, we had to repeat it over. Is that still a thing? And they still say it that way. Okay. That's what he's doing here. Period, statement, declarative sentence. Like, it's, it's an indicative. He, he's just saying what is. Indicatives tell what God has done, what he's doing, what he will do. And that's what he's saying. We died to sin. That's it. There's no imperative there. In chapters three through five, what's going on in those chapters? It's God who justifies God who counts one righteous, God who saves, and that's all that God has done. And and the result of that is this indicative. The result of all the work of God in chapters 3 through 5 is to say, we have now died to sin. It's a proclamation of status. It's a, a recognition of a new status, a new identity because of the work of God. Now, when I was younger... I know Christmas is over, and Christmas movies are probably over. When I was, I was younger, one of the Christmas movies that I would watch was The Santa Claus with Tim Allen. And, and he hears a clatter on the roof uh, Christmas Eve with his son. He goes out because his son wants to see what's going on. And sure enough, Santa Claus has fallen off of his roof. And his son really wants him to, to go see what's going on and, and put on the suit. So you, you remember this, like if you've seen the movie, the, holds up the card in his little mitten, and he puts on the suit and he becomes Santa Claus. Once he put on that suit, because of the Santa Claus, uh, he is no longer just merely, his, his name was Scott Calvin. He's no longer merely Scott Calvin anymore. He is now Santa Claus, Scott Calvin. And that's a little bit about how, how Paul describes those who are justified, those who have faith in Jesus Christ. You're not merely in Adam anymore. You're not merely under the reign of sin and death anymore. They're now under the reign of grace. You have now gained a new identity, a new status with a new relation to sin. And it's hard to find a more definitive way of describing one who is justified their relationship to sin by saying that you had died to it. It speaks of the reign of sin defeated, of its power broken, its status removed and revoked. It's saying that one who is justified is defined more by their in Christness now than by their in Adamness now. And that we includes all who have faith in Jesus. 
that we are now under the reign of grace, not under the reign of sin any longer. And Paul simply indicates that this means, because of the work of God in chapters 3 through 5, this indicates that we have now died to sin. Believer, you need to know and realize your new status in Christ. You have died to sin, Paul says. He's just indicating it to you. He's just saying, this is who we are now. This is what we are. This is how we can identify ourselves. We've died to sin. Verse 2. Verse 2's question. It needs to be read in light of our new status. How can we still live in sin? The clear answer is that you couldn't live in sin because we've died to sin. Our new status is, we're not in Adam anymore. We've died to sin. That's the old status. That's the old identity. That, that's Scott Calvin before he put on the Santa suit, right? And once he put it on, he can't go back. He wants to, but he can't go back. Once he put that on, it, it, life changed for him, didn't it? Like he starts gaining weight. He starts growing a beard. He can't help it. Like he's becoming more and more Santa Claus. His life was different, and it aligned with his new status as Santa Claus. He puts on weight. He grows a beard. He couldn't go on life as life before. He gets a shipment of, of nice and naughty lists to his house. Like All these things changed because he had died to Scott Calvin, in a sense, when he put on the suit. And Paul asserts for Christians, if you're in Christ, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, that's the way it is for us. We've now died to sin. We can't still live in it. So the question is for us, if we think we can still live in sin, even to magnify grace, then we, we haven't understood and realized our status in Christ, which prompts another question. Is our life then aligned with the new status that we profess? If you say that you're a Christian, if you proclaim the name of Christ, do you still live in sin? Because that's the question that Paul poses here. How could we? If we have died to sin, if this is true of us, if this is an indicative statement of who we are now in Christ, then, then could we still live in sin? Does sin run roughshod through your life, dominating different areas? Is it met with little resistance? Is it more characterization of your life than, than grace? If you're honest, does sin better describe you in certain areas of your life than grace? And if so, that might indicate that the status of your life isn't that you've died to sin but instead need to hear again the, the message of the gospel, that in Christ you've been counted righteous. The root of our lives is either our in Adamness or our in Christness, And out of one of those identities, we're going to live. Uh, one author says it plainly, I think, when he says this, if we live in sin, we have not died to it. And if we have not died to it, we are not Christ. And so the question of verse 2, how can we who died to sin still live in it, makes the believer's relation to sin clear, leaving no room for distortion in our own lives. You have died to sin. Christian, you need to know your status and what it means for you in relationship to sin. And Paul just puts it before us plainly in verses 1 and 2. We have died to sin. That's our new status. But he doesn't only assert it, right? Like he, he substantiates it. That's what he's going to do in verses 3 through 5. He just indicates it in verses 1 and 2. Now he's going to substantiate because Christians need to know their relationship to sin. And then he says, now we need to walk in newness of life. Instead of continuing in sin, Christians are to walk in a new life, which Paul uses uh, to, and describes and uses in verses 3 through 5. He says in verse 3, do you not know 
that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. And I want us to notice carefully the language that Paul uses. You are baptized into Christ. Now, Paul is not describing the, kind of the workings of baptism or baptism specifics, right? There's much that could be talked about and said on baptism and, and mode and, and who's the object of that. All those things could be talked about. This is not really a baptism text. Paul is using baptism language to signify one's union with Christ Jesus. Union with Christ Jesus, that is a participating with Jesus, a, a, a joining Jesus, a, a joining one's life to Christ's life, joining one's death to Christ's death. This is union language. It's used throughout. At the end of chapter 5, he used it. You're either in Adam and under the reign of sin and death, or you're in Christ and under the reign of grace. It permeates chapter 6, verse 4, you're buried with him. Verse 5, knighted with him. Verse 6, crucified with him. Verse 8, you've died with him. You also live with him. And we could go on. It, it is just permeates chapter 6. Union with Christ is on Paul's mind as he writes about being baptized into Christ. So again, he's not trying to work out all the specifics that he could work out on, on baptism. He is trying to work out and let us know who we are in Christ Jesus. He is talking about union with Christ. And he is saying that if you've been baptized into Christ, he's saying what that means is that you're united to Christ. That was what he was talking about. Baptism language is fitting here. Because what does baptism language do? It symbolizes joining one's life with Jesus' life, joining in his death, joining in his resurrection that he's going to talk about. And it coincides with conversion. It coincides with one trusting fully in Jesus. Like, it was an anomaly at this day to have someone who had been an unbaptized believer. Like, wasn't around. They were identifying fully. And so when he's using this language, they would have thought uh, quickly of conversion, of joining your life by faith to Christ's life. So when one believed, they were baptized. That marked their identification with and their union with Christ, which Paul says is a union in his death. Verse 3, he says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Verse 4, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. The, the baptized, the, those who have been converted, who have placed their faith in Jesus, are plunged into his death. They're... they're Joining him in his death. They're participating with Jesus in his death. Don't miss over and over again that it's his death. And that believers are united with him in it. It's his death they're joining. His death becomes their death. Buried, he says. Buried with him. In other words, like death really occurred here. Now you went all the way to the bottom with him. It's his burial, again, that is being joined by believers. You're baptized into his death, and you've joined his death, and you've also joined his burial. Paul is substantiating all this, verse 3 and 4, he's substantiating the, the indicative that he said earlier. We've died to sin. And he's substantiating that by saying, we've been united to Christ. You've died to sin because you've been united to Christ. And you, if you're united to Christ, you're united to Christ's death. For those in Christ who have faith and are united to him by that faith, he says, you've been baptized into him, baptized into his death, baptized into his burial. In Christ, our relation to sin now has shifted because we have now died to sin because we've joined with Christ. That status of we've died to sin is just as real to us as Jesus' actual death and burial. And that's why he's joining those together. 
If you've joined Christ, you're, you have died to sin, that's your status just as much as Jesus Christ has actually died and was buried, which Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15 is of first importance, utmost importance to us. That's how decisively sin has been dealt with by Jesus. That as he died and was buried, so too your sin has been, its power broken, its status revoked. That's how real it is for you who have joined your life with Christ. By faith we join him, and when we join him, our sin has decisively been dealt with by him. That's why Paul could say, he says it in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. That's a weird thing to say, right? I'll tell you about myself. I've been crucified. Paul hadn't been crucified. You know that, right? Like he's writing. Like he, hadn't, he, he has not been crucified. But he can't say, I have been crucified with Christ because he had joined his life with Christ. And Christ had been crucified. So what could Paul say about himself? Oh, oh I, I no longer live. Yeah, I'm done. I, I wonder what tempted Paul after the Damascus road. I, I wonder what, I mean, we don't get a lot of insight into that in his writing sometimes. But like, I wonder what was uniquely tempting to him. Be, before the Damascus road, he, he goes after those who are opposing what he thinks is, is the work of God, right? And the people of God. And he eliminates threats, right? <laughs> this is Paul's... Uh, you know, mode of operation. Like there's a threat to the kingdom of God as he understood it. And so what do we do with that threat? We take them out. Drag them off. Even stone them. And approve of that. Because that's a threat to the kingdom of God. And then he meets Jesus on the, on the Damascus road. And, and I wonder what his temptation was after that. I wonder if it was similar. Before he opposes those who oppose the kingdom of God and he takes out threats. I wonder if he was tempted like that with the Galatians. Here come in these false teachers, Judaizers, who are saying, let's add on to the gospel a little bit of circumcision or whatever else. And I wonder if Paul thought, like, I know how to handle this. I'm going to find these guys and I'm going to drag them away. Or maybe even I'll approve of their stoning. Should that happen? I'll hold your coat. I wonder if he was tempted like that. Tempted to do that with false teachers. That's possible. It's possible he felt that real pull, like, I can take care of this problem, I've done it before. But what does Paul say? I've been crucified. He's not going to carry out that temptation because he no longer lives. That's the old Paul. He doesn't live anymore. I've been crucified. I'll deal with it in a different way. The power of sin would have been for Paul what it is for us, strong, alluring. But stronger still for Paul was this new status and identity, crucified. I no longer live. Something stronger now defined Paul. It was Christ and his work in him. And it was decisive. I've been crucified. What a brutal picture, right? Paul says, I've been crucified. Here he says, we've died to sin. We've been plunged into his death. We're baptized into his death and burial. What a brutal picture. But it's a right picture for us to know and realize. It's a needed picture to like, liven our imagination. We Died to sin, one author says. Our old identity, again, I love the words because we need the vivid imagery. We've died with him and our old identity was slaughtered, speared, and buried with Christ. Because it's that real. Just as Jesus died and was buried, so sin's power was broken completely. Its status revoked for Paul and for all who are in Christ Jesus, we could say that I was slaughtered, speared, and buried with Christ. I've been crucified. 
I no longer live. We can say in the face of temptation by faith, I've been crucified. I, I no longer live. We could say in the face of accusation, like I've been crucified. I, I no longer live. The, the past death of Christ identifies me more than my past sin now. That I with him now identifies me more than I with sin or I with anything else because I'm united to Christ now. There is this bishop who was being threatened by the Roman Empire and they threatened to confiscate all of his stuff, exile him, torture him, and even kill him. And here's what he responded. Here's how he responded. This is Basil, Basil the Great. He says, all that I have that you can confiscate are these rags and a few books. Nor can you exile me, for wherever you send me, I shall be God's guest. As to tortures, you should know that my body is already dead in Christ, and death would be a great boon to me, leading me sooner to God. If you have died to sin, if you are united to Christ by faith, you can say that too. What can you now do to my body? I've already been crucified. You can maybe kill my body, but then I get great reward. <laughs> Actually, you might take my stuff, but my inheritance is already secure in Christ. I have been crucified. And if you're united to Christ, and we have not just joined Jesus in his death and in his burial. He says in verse 4 that we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that... Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. He says, you haven't just been united to Jesus in His death, not just His death, but also in His life, in His resurrection. You have new life and newness of life in Him. Notice that in order that, Paul is signaling, this is what I've been describing. Like, I, so that this could be true. This is Paul's main point. He is asserting, right? He asserted that, that believers have this new identity, that they have now died to sin. Why is he saying that? Because they're united to Jesus. And the point of letting them know all that, the point of them knowing their new status, of realizing their new status is right here, that you might walk in newness of life, that you may no longer walk in sin. And he says, we too might walk in newness of life. That's we too, like that's union language. We're united to Christ because he has a resurrection life. We too might join him. That's union language. If you're united to Christ in his death, then you are united, united to Christ in his resurrection. And that is a resurrection that I think he's not just talking about a future. That's now. All right, verse five, it su supports verse four. And the point of these verses is walking in new life right now. He, he's not talking, he is talking about life after death, but life after death here and now for believers because they've already died in Christ. That's the life he's talking about now. Christ was raised and believers join that resurrection life here and now. In other words, he's saying the resurrection life of Christ has broken through into this world that's under the reign of sin and death, but it's broken through for you who've been united to Christ right now. It's here and now, remember the, that Paul is answering the question of verse 1. Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. And he says, the, he questions back, how can we still live right now in sin? How can we do that? He's talking about right now. And he says, if you're united to Christ, that only means that your status is changed, that you've now died to sin, but that has freed you up here and now to walk in newness of life. In a sense, those 
who have put their faith in Christ are like Lazarus on the other side of the tomb. He'd experienced a real death. Like he'd died. He'd been in the tomb. But then Jesus speaks into that death and he walks out with life anew and afresh. He, he wasn't just released from the grip, grip of death. He was set free to walk in newness of life. It's unthinkable that Lazarus would have come out of the other side of the tomb and said, how about you rewrap me? I like those stinky rags that you had over me. How about you rewrap me because I like walking that way now that I'm alive again? The stiff way, the walk, it, it's actually preferable to me. That would have been unthinkable. Christian, you've died to sin. And if you've died to sin, it should be unthinkable that you should walk in anything but newness of life, resurrection life that Christ has now delivered to you here and now. Since power for you has been broken, its status has been removed and revoked. Newness of life has been granted to you in Christ Jesus, purchased by his blood and by our union with him. We participate with him both in his death and burial and in his resurrection life. And we do that by walking in new life, living here and now in new life, no longer bowing down to sin, but bowing up in resistance to sin because life, the life of Jesus is pulsing through us now, no longer concerned for the threat of true accusations of our own sin against us because we've already been accused and condemned in the cross, no longer in fear of death because we've already died and we've already come out the other side in Christ. And so because of that, knowing all that, realizing that moves us to walk in newness of life in Christ Jesus. We walk like Jesus because all those things are true in Christ Jesus. With righteousness, love, full dependence and reliance upon our Father. I, I know some of you, I'm, I'm reading this series right now, but I know some of you are familiar with the, the wing feather saga that Andrew Peterson wrote and in one of those books, there's this character named Janner Wingfeather. And he gets captured and, and becomes a slave in a place called the Fork Factory. They don't actually make forks, but that's what it's called, Fork Factory. And, and they're brutal to these children there. It's, it is intense slave labor. They're brutal to them. And, and what they do if they get out of line and don't just do their work all day, every day, all the time, is they whip them, and if they continue in their disobedience, they put them in a coffin and just let them sit in silence and in darkness, alone and afraid, not knowing what's next for they don't know how long. And Janner, he tries to get away one time, and he gets caught, whipped, and put in a coffin. But, but while he's there, like he sleeps, and he starts thinking and dreaming, thinking about things of the world, things that he's seen, things that he's done. And it says that, that when they opened the door to the coffin, here's what it says, that, that Janner looked at the, the person who had let him out. He looked at him as the coffin opens with fire in his eyes. When the one who he looked at saw him, he actually took a step back because he wasn't used to kids coming out of the coffin undefeated, it says. Janner came out of the coffin undefeated because he had thoughts that were higher and better than what he was in in that coffin. He had gone in unconscious, and he came out, it says, more awake than ever. Christian, in Christ Jesus, we've been in the coffin, and we have now come out undefeated. 
with fire in our eyes, and we should be more awake than ever to walk in newness of life. That the achievement of Christ and our achievement by our union with him is knowing that we have a new status now, and that new status now then changes how we live here and now. We can now live out resurrection life here and now, walking in newness of life. What is this union with Christ but a triumph of who he is and what he has done, and that accomplishment being shared to us by our union with him? This is something that we need to remember together. This is something that we need to commit to again, afresh and anew, to walk in newness of life. Church, here's what we do when we do that. We take this Lord's Supper where we remember the life of Christ, His death, His burial, His resurrection, His future coming. And we do that together because we know we can't come to the table on our own work, based on our own merits. We come on what He has done. And we only have a place at the table because we're united to Him by faith. So if you don't have faith in Jesus, you're not united to him by that faith. We say, don't take this meal. Don't be united to this meal. Be united to Christ by trusting in him. But if you are united to Christ by your faith, if you do trust in this Jesus, then you have now joined him, participating with him in his death, burial, and his resurrection. And so what we say together is, let us eat, drink, and be merry for we have already died. Let's pray together. First Corinthians chapter.